Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Sharath as always and as always I'm delighted to say that I have been joined by Alex Parker. How are you Alex? Uh, uh, uh I'm a bit mixed. I mean for the listeners if this recording A doesn't make it out, B makes it out and I'm missing for half of it is because my PC which I spent a lot of money upgrading has not behave, been behaving very well. Um, so I'm in a bit of a mood, but on the other hand, we're what's about a fun topic today. I think Neil's about to introduce. We're a lot of man, and we're quite united uh, in our appreciation of them. Um, I think someone else is on the pod, aren't they, Neil? Do you want to introduce them as well? Yeah, there's uh, there's Varun Vasudevan as well. Who uh, now I wonder if he will choose to speak after uh, some of your words. There, how are you doing, Varun? I'm okay. And um, just for the Thank listeners. You know. This is Alex and uh, Neil's attempt to say United as many times as they can to trigger me because of the week I've had. And I'm here to say it's not working. I'm in a good mood and I'm in a mood to talk nice things in this podcast. So ah, let's get on to that. Very nice. Yes, very nice, very nice. Right. Um, just for some context, we're recording this on the Thursday, which is right the day after Manchester United have lost 3-0 to Newcastle United uh, in the League Cup, which is why we're uh, mishound. A little dejected, but anyway, that's not what we're going to talk about. We will steer well clear of uh, England, although the team we are talking about does seem to have some connection to Manchester United, uh, although not officially. But anyway, without further ado, uh, the topic for this episode is going to be Nice, who are the surprise league leaders in France uh, very early on in the season, uh, catching a lot of interest and attention from, from around the world because playing some very interesting football under a very young manager, uh, Francesco Farioli. He has joined this summer and he has taken them, uh, after a really disappointing uh, season last time out, to uh, basically transforming them into potentially one of the title contenders. Although that is, of course, something we are going to discuss in this episode. But our main focus, as ever, will be on their tactics, what they do, how they do it. uh, And also we'll highlight some of their key players, uh, some exciting youngsters to watch in there. Uh, and of course, we will have some debates and discussions about what we think they're doing well, what we think they're not doing well. And ultimately, we'll come up with our predictions for the season. But before all that, it's important to set some background. So we'll start by talking briefly about Nice uh, and what's been going on there in the last couple of years, as well as a bit about Francesco Farioli, who's had an interesting career so far, to say the least. But let's begin with uh, Nice. Varun, why don't you give us the the lowdown of uh, what's what's going on there in the last few years? Yeah, so I mean, we've spoken about uh, this multiple times in different episodes that so many things about the tactics or the team or the manager or the players, and what really affects is the board being set up in a way that is con- conducive to it. And I think here also, it's a very similar pattern. So we start with Sir Jim Ratcliffe taking over Nice. I mean, obviously, this is of a lot of interest to current Manchester United and Premier League fans. And if the question they are asking is, how has that ownership worked out for Nice? I'd say the answer is a bit of good and bad. And a lot of the the bad comes right after the takeover. The first few years of the takeover were a little messy. Sir Jim was trying to run it with... um, 
random haphazard board of the Ineos CEO and himself and one or two people who were there at Nice. And they made some very odd signings. They finished, you know, in low places in the league. They got a lot of brand signings. Uh, they got Ramsey, Schneiderlin. Uh, they got a lot of these old players who have no business being there. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is just another takeover where they're focusing on brand signings. So I don't know whether it was always planned and it got delayed or they learned their lessons and they pivoted. But somewhere in between, they started to set the structure right. They got in a proper football CEO and the Ineos CEO went back up as a Ineos group CEO. And then they got a director of football in. And I think this is where things start to turn. They got in Gisolfi. And French football fans will know of Gisolfi from his time with RC Lens, where he did really good work. I actually wrote an article about directors of football United should look at, underrated ones. And Gisolfi was one of my picks. Uh, that's how good he is. He's an up-and-coming up young uh, sporting director. And Nice picked him up. And since then, they have been pivoting to a very clear strategy. And that can be seen in the way they have fixed their transfers in the last two windows. So they've replaced these old signings. All of them have gone off. And now they've started buying young players with a very specific possession football kind of um, intent, but also with a bit of carrying power. If you see the signings they've made in the last two windows, all of them are really good carriers. So it's going along with the new evolution of football. Pep Guardiola is also buying carriers. Nice have also added a lot of carriers. And then comes the big one. They get in Farioli. And... All of it syncs up. So basically, before we even get into tactics or, you know, how the squad is being managed, the fact that Nice came to a point where they got a CEO, a director of football and a manager and the recruitment all pointing in the same direction and then got two windows to sign players according to that singular vision. I think that is one of the main reasons today they are at the top of League One and they have a very good future ahead of them. So just wanted to set that. Like all things, it comes down to the vision at the top. Yeah, and um, I mean, got to add, just to add on to that as well. I mean, Varun's uh, covered it in some really good detail there and he would know about bad ownership. So it's good to get that noted down, nothing to glaze over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, to, just to talk about what's been happening on the pitch since 2021 when they hired Christophe Galtier, fresh off winning Ligue 1 with Lille. Um, it's been a lot, while they've been putting the pieces together behind the scenes, I think that the catalyst for that was perhaps uh, the horror on the pitch. Galtier, very different style of football to Francesco Farioli, uh, 4-4-2 system, deep block, horror to watch. And then last summer, they got in Lucien Favre, who went appallingly wrong, along with some really bad transfers that Varane alluded to, like Kasper Schmeichel. Good God, he was dreadful. and Probably was in his last season at Leicester, to be fair. Um, and then they got Didier Degan, who was a bit more of a transition into uh, Farioli. But um, just to quickly note, like, some of the players I feel they've lost in the last couple of years, like Amin Gili, they signed him in 2021, I think it was, and, 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 and um, sold him out not long after Terren in a trade for Gaetan Laborde. So I think it was a bit more chaotic on the pitch uh, and with the manager, but as Varane says, now they seem to be aligned. Yes, and of course, as you said, arguably their most important signing of the summer was Francesco Farioli. 
a bit of background about him he's only 35 years old still and interestingly he's one of those young managers who hasn't had a career, a career in professional football as a player uh, he instead actually studied philosophy quite interestingly uh, and then went on to study sports science in university he was then a goalkeeper coach in Italy uh, until like 2011, I believe. Uh, he moved, well, rather from 2009 for a few years. Then eventually he moved to the Aspire Academy in Qatar uh, to coach the under-16 national team. And then in, I believe, 2017, he returned to Italy with Roberto De Zerbi, who re- who are uh, one of his coaching staff, read one of his articles about uh, his Benevento side and found it interesting enough to approach him and hire him. So he was basically hired of one of his articles, among other things. And he, he was then the goalkeeper coach with Dead Zerbi at Benevento for a season. And then he went with him to Sassuolo, which is, of course, where uh, Dead Zerbi made his name. Uh, and he was there until 2020. And then he got his first job as an assistant uh, manager in the Turkish Super League with Alanya Spor. Uh, and they had a pretty good start to the season with him there. And then uh, in early 2021, he moved within Turkey to a club called Fatih Karagümrük, who uh, were recently coached by Andrea Pirlo as well, so you might have heard of them. But he was the coach before that. Uh, he was, I think at the time, the youngest coach uh, in Europe, in like one of the top league, uh, top flight leagues in Europe, at just 31 years old. Uh, and he, he, he did pretty impressively, uh, so much so that by the end of the year, by the end of 2021, he was uh, approached again by Alanya Spor, but this time to take over as the manager. And it's in Alanya Spor that he really made his name. So he took, the uh, Alanya Spor were, I mean, they're not exactly an established Turkish Super League side. I believe they were only promoted for the first time in 2016. And so he took them to their most successful campaign with a fifth place finish, which is their highest league position to date uh, in the in the second half of the 21-22 season. And he, he what he really stood out with was his playing style. I remember seeing a banner from the Alanya Spur fans, which read, the Super League is busy because of us because they were an insanely high-volume passing team and really, on occasion, they actually sort of passed rings around their opponents uh, and and they got some big, big results as a result of it and uh, got the attention of many people around, around Europe and the world. And, of course, Farioli became a, a, a very, very... Ex- he really made his name there. Uh, there was a lot of hype around him. He stuck. Uh, he, he stayed rather in Alanya Spur in the summer of 2022, uh, but the following season wasn't so good. His tactics remained interesting. He tried some. Uh, he changed some stuff, uh, but continued to be a very very interesting team to watch in possession. But the results weren't quite there. They were more in the lower half of the table, even a bit close to the relegation zone. So he left uh, by mutual consent in in early 2023. Uh, just before the end of the season. And at that point, I mean, it, it seemed quite obvious that in the summer, a, a sort of a top top five league or certainly one of the top 10 leagues uh, club would go in for him. And ultimately, that obviously proved to be Nice. So he is now at uh, Nice, as we know, and he is doing some very, very interesting stuff.
which we will get into. But before that, uh, any stuff to add, guys? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you covered his background well. And I think transitioning into what he's doing now, I think a very good starting template for Farioli is just to imagine Deserby because they do have a lot of similarities. Obviously, we'll get when we get into tactics, we'll get into the differences. I think the biggest similarity is in the way in which they build up. They have those very, very similar fullbacks coming narrow into midfield and a lot of quick vertical passes to get into that middle third facing the goal. You know, so those third man uh, wall passes, forming those triangles, um, keeping your heels on the ball to bait the press and then, you know, uh, within two passes, get behind the area that just got uh, vacated. So they have those similarities. And just to give you an idea of um, how similar they are, let's just play a fun game like we always do. So I have a list in front of me. Obviously, you guys are not allowed to see FBref. It's FBref, nothing else. Um, and it's a simple question. I have completed passes per 90 for players who have played more than 790s, okay? Let's filter it at 790s, League 90s, for the Premier League and for League 1. So in the Premier League, can you tell me where Lewis Dunk and Adam Webster rank among all players for completed passes per 90 for players who have played more than 790s? Neil, you can Dunk go first. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to ask, isn't, is this after... I want to clarify. Didn't Dunk at the weekend do like a hundred fifty passes in a half or something in, insane? That was uh, one fifty passes by Dunk, and two weekends before that, Todibo did one sixty four passes in a game, which is currently the record for this season. Yeah, that's mental. So you're kind of you're getting where I want to go, but anyway, the go on, Neil. Oh, yeah, sorry. Neil. yeah. I think yes. Uh, the the position I would say. Well, I mean, now that you said that, but I would say Dunk is first. Uh, and Webster is well, second would be too optimistic, no? But second or third? It was per ninety, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, I mean, seven nineties. That that takes his average up quite a bit. Hmm. But what happens if he had a very low game? Uh, so Duncan Webster, I'm going to say they're uh, third and fourth. Okay. Um, Alex is closer. So I'll read out the Premier League list. Rodri is first. Of course. Dunk. Dunk is second. Is Ruben second? Diaz, oh, right. yeah. Ruben oh, Diaz is third. Uh, Akanji is fourth. Tisasi, Thiago Silva, William Saliba, and then Adam Webster. So third oh. and ninth. Okay, right. that's for the Brighton boys. Now, same question for the Nice centre backs, Todibo and Dante. Uh, where do you think they rank in the league one? I'm going to go Todibo first. Dante seventh. I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to go Dante first, Todibo fifth. Okay. So the list here is uh, Marquinhos first. Of course. Skriniar second. Lucas Hernandez third. Hakimi fourth. Todibo fifth, Dante sixth. So in both cases, if you just take out those crazy City and PSG guys, uh, the center backs for both clubs are in the top three easily. Yeah, that just goes to show the similarity in play style and how it translates. So, just wanted to bring that up and I think that sets us well for the tactical stuff. Yep, Uh, and I think it's worth saying that, of course, there will be differences in terms of structure and everything, but 
on in terms of overall style we've seen this from Farioli in his previous couple of clubs as well so he's very much been uh, a dead Serbi disciple if you will obviously since working under him for those three years in Italy but yeah as you say let's dive into the tactics of his niece side now or maybe before that let's sort of further set some more context with some stats uh, of the season so far because they have been putting up some crazy numbers uh, in a variety of aspects, especially defense, interestingly. So, Alex, do you have some numbers for us? Oh, uh, I do. We, we have it written down in our, in our podcast plan. If I didn't have any, that'd be quite embarrassing. Um, yeah, what's quite. also embarrassing is that uh, Nice have conceded less goals this season than Man United have in their last two games, which is quite a fun stat, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> hey guys, that's enough, you know, that's really, enough. Really <laughs> Oh, no, all right. I'm going to prepare every one of my sections of a Man United comparison. You just don't know what it's coming. <laughs> um, but yes, Nice have conceded four league goals all season. The least in Europe's top five leagues. The least per 90. Uh, the least in terms of... Uh, the second least in terms of non-penalty expected goals per 90 as well. 0.59 against. For contents, their they're surrounders uh, for all stats really are Inter Milan, which is surprisingly high. Atalanta also surprisingly high. Uh, this isn't a specific order, by the way, but these are like the top seven. Uh, Bayern, Juventus as well, Manchester City, Arsenal up there. Um, yeah, their defence is crazy. They've also kept the most clean sheets. Uh, I think that's down to Marcin Bolka, who we might touch on a bit later. And like another mind-blowing stat is they've not gone behind once this season. Um, but I believe that still stands. I can't remember the last game. I'm pretty sure I watched him like win 1-0. So yeah, the last five games have been like 1-0, so yeah. Yeah, it's just... They, so, like, this isn't even, you know, Gerona are near the top of La Liga at the right now, and everyone kind of expects them to fall away. I think they do too. And Fabioli has said, like, they're not favourites for Liga, but right now, like, statistically, like, they have got the defence to win a title. Like, and, it, and the underlying numbers back it up as sustaining, which is really, really crazy. Yep. And yeah, I guess that's a good sort of transition for us to dive into the specific tactics of their defence. Now, I think one interesting point noting is the Fayoli's uh, Alanya Spur were super exciting in possession, but not quite so much out of possession. I mean, some people will say it's hard to be exciting out of possession, but basically they were not very good out of possession either. They scored a lot, but they also considered a, a, a very high amount. So that was really one of the big reservations about Fayoli before he moved to Nice. But I think he's um, he's done really well in this regard. And he basically said it to himself as well. And it's quite obvious for anyone who watched him, his Alanya Spur and then his niece. Uh, he really prioritized the defense first at Nice, which of course was really needed after their disappointing season last season when they finished like ninth or something. Uh, so he, from a tactical point of view, his first focus really seemed to be on getting the, the defensive side of things across uh, and then moving on to the in-possession stuff, which... Personally, I would still place as under development. But anyway, focusing on the defending, from the first game, what we saw was an interesting hybrid uh, defensive approach in a, a 4 4 2 basic structure, but obviously varying in terms of opposition. They would uh, set up quite high. The, the real interesting role I found was that of their wingers, who were relatively narrow and really in between the 
uh, sort of uh, in vertical terms in between the two strikers and two midfielders. So, so the, the hybridity that I referred to really stemmed from their positioning. They uh, had the job of often being the pressing triggers, but certainly of covering a variety of positions uh, of the opposition, including sometimes, uh, especially against back threes, going out to press the centre-back, uh, covering against the full-back or wing-back, and on occasion even coming into midfield uh, to, to mark an opposition midfielder. But essentially, it's a hybrid block without a real uh, proactive front press. So they would set out high, but not exactly chase the ball. But once the opposition would try to play through them, that's when their press would really spring, especially with this sort of structure of six uh, up front, which could be quite congested and compact centrally. So they, they did look to win the ball back in midfield or certainly in the middle of the pitch that way. Uh, so in that sense, their the press looked quite good. And again, because of the, the hybrid approach between some player-oriented uh, attackers, but also some zonal defenders, particularly the defence midfielder, uh, they did manage to both press successfully and also not really get played through and exposed at the back. So they, they really managed this very well. And as I said, it, it varies from game to game, their approach, depending on opposition. So I don't think there's any point in sort of assigning specific numbers to their shapes or anything. But this is basically how the overall sort of approach to defending is this. And then uh, most interestingly, I think deeper, uh, this is certainly the most interesting part I found about their defending, is that they often drop into a back five uh, when they when they're pushed into their own half, either when their press is beaten or just generally if they get pushed back. Uh, and what happens is the their deepest midfielder, Yusuf Andiashima usually, he will drop between the two centre-backs to track the opposition striker. So in, in this approach, they get the five at the back in their own half, which is really solid and really tough to beat or break down uh, into the box. But pressing with the back five is a bit tougher in the opposition half and limiting in many cases. So, so they really get to have the advantage of a back four in the opposition half uh, and a back five in their own half through this, again, this hybrid approach. So I think Fayoli is crafted a very good defensive, uh, some very good defensive tactics here. And he does deserve a lot of credit for that. And certainly he is getting a lot of success for that. I think Varun has some points to add. So feel free to pitch in Varun. Yeah, um, I think um, what I like is usually when we do tactics, we do the in-possession stuff and start with the build-up. But in today's episode, we've gone with the out-of-possession stuff first. And and I think it's deserved because Nice are really good at the out-of-possession stuff. As you guys said, there's a reason they're one of the best defenses. And I think their uh, defensive approach and their pressing especially is really good. They're already one of the best pressing sides um, in, in the top five leagues. They're, they're as good or better than PSG. And I think the PSG game itself reflected that. Uh, I thought... Uh, that was a total out out of possession win. Like if you had to show a game, uh, because PSG had 69% of the possession and typical Enrique style, they kept the ball, they passed around uh, trying to, you know, find avenues. But knees were just set up in such an interesting manner. And they, as you said, they have that hybrid way of, you know, backing off and pressing in certain zones with certain men. So what I've noticed is they have these very specific pressing triggers and they either press so one thing is they funnel the ball into wide areas um they don't really commit too many men 
centrally but then they keep funneling the ball into wide areas and then there is a point where they'll jump in the wide areas because you know it's like um unsaid wall the the outline that acts like a wall so usually players are trapped there and how they do that as well if a player is facing them they obviously don't do that but when someone is receiving on the wing with an uh, awkward body shape and you know they have to turn that's when they press so there's again a lot of body shape uh, recognition and this again comes back to the deserby logic i mean we have heard um, i think it was in the podcast with kevin prince barting where he said that deserby is really really you know anal about body shapes and how to receive and stuff like that and this is like the inverse of that because they look at the body shapes of the opponents so i think a lot of times todibo when he was marking mbappe and he would go, mbappe would drop to the left wing to receive todibo would chase him and if mbappe received in that you know awkward angle where it takes just half a second for him to turn and todibo wouldn't even give him that half a second um another pressing trigger i've noticed is when a single pivot is receiving they just jump on him so usually they don't jump too much centrally they wait for this wide pass and then they jump but if they notice a center back alone or a number 6 alone receiving and that person has to turn halfway again they jump so again there's a very body shape angle to it anyone who's either in a corner or alone in the center of the pitch without support on the half turn and who has to turn and get out of it unless you know there a frankie diongo can actually you know dribble their way out of such a crazy situation Nice usually use that as a pressing trigger to press and win the ball. So I think they're really good at spotting those moments. I won't say they're a crazy, you know, uh, opposition build-up disrupting kind of pressing team. Their PPDA numbers, their opposition build-up percentage numbers aren't that that crazy. They're like eighth, ninth in the league or something. So I won't say they completely go high and you know press all the defenders and goalkeepers of the opposition. But they're very very smart in picking their moments and making the most of their moments. so i think lot of tactical credit uh, needs to be given for that um alex you had something to add yeah i, I just wanted to throw in as well um no no sure they might have mentioned it my earphones fell out halfway through this but it's all good um just going to add into the flexibility of uh, their approaches uh, it's something i w- wanted to note down on the plan before i was just going through our notes uh like their game against Monaco really impressed me where i think we spoke about them having a hybrid approach and like i think a bit more you know they, they can defend a bit more zonally like a first glance but i remember against monaco um who've had real joy this season been in the top 3 that just being able to basically pack players between the lines they defended large parts of the game against them which they ended up winning like extremely man to man uh i think like pretty much across the board like the defenders going man to man with monaco's like front three and i just remember that game being so solid for them because up until that point monaco was so dangerous at going forwards and i remember watching it thinking nice and not done anything, not not done it to this extent before uh but one they looked really comfortable on to monaco from memory didn't get that big clear chances in that game so i just thought I'd throw that fun little anecdote in there yeah that's a fair point i think they they really understand the way to approach defensive sort of pressing or basically defensive uh, structures or tactics in, in between different games really well so they identify as well as said they identify triggers and stuff really well and also i think they have very good one against one defenders in many places uh, across the pitch especially to rebo one of them 
uh, and also that players in general have really taken in Farioli's tactics very well, I feel. I mean, obviously credit to him as well, I suppose, because he must have communicated it quite clearly. But they're also already executing, especially the defensive defensive tactics, super, super well. So uh, on, on all fronts in this aspect, they've been fantastic. But now let's move on to their in-possession stuff, which really when Farioli came in at Nice, as I said, from his Alanya Spur side, his real selling point was his in-possession stuff. He was one of the most exciting managers in that aspect. Of course, the same can be said of Dead Zerbi. And in fact, I would already say that Farioli's defensive stuff is better than Dead Zerbi. But uh, in possession, uh, personally, I do have some questions, but it's certainly something worth discussing and perhaps debating. But before we do that, we of course need to sort of set, set the grounds for what we're talking about. So, Varun, why don't you take us through what they've been doing in possession uh, so far in about these uh, seven, eight games this season? Yeah. So, I'll talk about their build-up. And when I say build-up uh, over the next few minutes, I don't specifically mean uh, in first phase or when they're deep in the half. I also mean, I'm also including second phase, which is the progression phase. Basically, how they, they get into the opponent half. Um, so, they do build up. So, now there's a lot of naming nomenclature here. Um, I read a very nice nomenclature that describes what they do as a 2-3-2-3. And I thought it made sense. And I'll explain how. So, imagine the base formation as a 4-3-3. Uh, a regular 4-3-3. Four defenders. One number six or defensive midfielder two number eights or central midfielders, two wide wingers and a striker. So typical 4-3-3. When they're in their in the, uh, their half or in the first phase of possession, the full max come really narrow next to the number six to form like a three. And the center back spread out a little, giving that two three shape. And then the rest of uh, the players are in a two three. So that's why it's called a two three two three. Um. So they have various modes of this. Obviously, there's no one clear shape. So I'll take it from, let's say, easy to hard. You know, when they do find it really easy, what they do, to when they do find it hard. So the easiest version of this is a 2-3-2-3 with the goalkeeper also joining in. So the goalkeeper often, in their case, uh, Bulka moves as a right centre-back and Todibo has that extra space to go in as a right-back or a right defensive midfielder. Um, and give them uh, more options. And this often happens um, to bait the press from the left finger. So uh, the left finger is baited and then the, the extra space that's, that gets created, the right side eight drops and they're able to release the right back or the right eight, depending on who's uh, featuring for the pass. Um, to give you a good reference, you can think of the Brighton United game where Brighton did this a lot on United's left side when Rashford Eriksen would drop and they would play through the right side using the right back and uh, the centre back uh, to give those passing lanes. So, knees also do that. They're e easily able to manipulate. This is the easy version of that tactic. Slightly harder version is when the goalkeeper is not able to join. Then the number six remains. The two fullbacks come close. And those five are enough to have those wall passes or form those triangles and get out and go towards a number eight facing the play or go towards a winger facing the play. In a slightly medium version, a number eight also drops in. So they have two midfielders in a pivot. So now here is where I would say it starts to look very similar to 
Deserbys Brighton. Because Deserbys Brighton did this a lot last year and even this year, where both the midfielders would drop. So last year it was McAllister and Caicedo, and then the fullbacks would also come narrow. So now you have those two triangles: centre back, fullback number eight on one side, centre back, fullback number eight on the other side. Uh, this is Nice's second version, where they have a pivot and they have six players in build-up. And I think their hard version, if you may call it, uh, we could see that versus PSG, is where both eights drop. So, I mean, almost everyone is in their half. And interestingly, what happens is that this doesn't give... It obviously gives them a lot of short options. And as a result, the opposing team has to uh, also commit players to go with these players. You know, that's the whole idea. But then what it actually does is it frees up that space when PSG's midfielders all have to track the three nice midfielders and come deep. There are those passing lanes for the wingers to get the pass or the striker to, you know, roam into a half space and get the pass. And that that often happened in that game and that often happens. Nice don't have any um, mandatory clause to always pass short, you know, to the players available. When such passing lanes open up, they go direct from the goalkeeper to the winger as well. Whether it's a grounded pass or a lofted pass, they don't mind playing that clip ball right to the winger if the passing lane opens up, if the midfielders attract a lot of the opposition players towards them. So that happened a lot in the PSG game, where Nice did not dominate possession. They only had 30% possession. But they would often crowd the midfielders, attract them, and open a long pass uh, lane. And that's how they would get out of their half. One of the wingers would get it and face forwards. And it would be a three-on-three with the striker and other winger joining in. So they also have that capability. So they've shown all the variations to what degree it's successful keeps varying. But they've shown three, four at least variations where they can commit players in their half and also go long or go short depending on what the opposition is doing with their press. So I think there's a lot of, um, at least in terms of patterns, there's a lot of potential to manipulate the opposition press. And I think, uh, to me, that's the aim of a good build-up. So I think they're getting there. It's not as great as their out-of-possession stuff, but I think all all the structures are there, and I think it'll only get better. I also feel out-of-possession stuff is a little faster to catch on Usually when a new manager comes, they're able to sort out the defensive part or the pressing part first. Built-up patterns are a little later to catch on. I think they'll be a little better in the second half of the season or maybe even next season. They'll be even better. But I can see all the patterns there. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've uh, covered it really, really well there. Uh, And I think it will be interesting. Build-up as far as self-manipulating the opposition... Uh, opening up lanes or opening up options, uh, creating isolations or three-on-three sort of situations in in the front line. As far as all of that is concerned, they're already doing very well, I would say. Uh, and as you said, there's good examples of that. But uh, my main reservation of their style of play in possession so far is what they do when they face opponents who don't press. Um, because, you know, essentially what they do in possession, again, is not too dissimilar to Brighton. And we have also seen Brighton struggle against non-pressing opposition this season. West Ham, the best example. But essentially, the the issue is that both of these teams do look to do a fair bit of what we call press baiting, right? And obviously, examples of that are, you know, centre-back stepping on the ball with, like, their sole uh, on the ball, uh, trying to even maybe roll it back a bit to sort of lure the opposition forward and then try and play through them. 
and I'm, that I'd say it has worked for Nice as well when the opposition has bought that bait. But in matches where they they face more low block opposition or certainly opposition that don't press, I feel their possession has very often been quite stagnant. And I think one very good reflection of that is that passing record set by Todibo in oh, I, I forgot which game it was. I'll quickly look that up. But basically. Uh, as I think Alex mentioned earlier in the episode, a couple of weeks ago, Tadibo, was it against uh, Brest or Mess maybe? He set a record of like 160, 170-odd passes, uh, which is all lovely. But it, it means that he was seeing a lot of the ball and not the attackers. So they had a lot of ball around, a lot of the ball rather around the back. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've pulled the game up now. It was against Mess. They won 1-0. Tadipo with 164 completed passes out of 80, out of 180, of course. And look at this. Uh, in terms of their attacking stats, Mess had 10 shots to their 7. So even though they had like two thirds of possession, they couldn't outshoot Mess. Now they did have a higher XG tally because obviously they did create uh, higher quality chances, uh, although their goal accounted for most of their XG uh, individually. But th- the point is, Against these low block teams like a mess who don't press, who not would not going to sort of fall for their press baiting, I feel Nice can be quite stagnant. And as you say, it's only you know about ten, maybe even less than ten matches since Farioli has come in. Yeah, exactly ten league matches. Uh, so this is, I'm I'm not saying or this is not a criticism of Farioli already because I know from his time at Aranya Spur, I have no doubts about his uh, his tactics in possession. I think the point only is as you say that. You know, always the first focus is defensively much more easier. Um, so, as you say, it's much easier for a new coach to come in and implement their pressing structures and defensive shapes and blah, blah, blah. Whereas the inclusion patterns and everything are tougher to implement. So, it, it is definitely a matter of time. But I would say Nice so far are quite good against pressing teams. But uh, I have various questions against non-pressing teams. And an extension of this point is also the fact which I think Farioli has uh, acknowledged himself, that the players he has, especially in, in attack, are not exactly all the profiles he would like. Because right now, what he needs uh, in his attack, especially against these pressing sides, are sort of like difference makers or certainly uh, players who can take on individual duels and consistently win and consistently make something of them. Uh, and what he's got in the likes of uh, a guy on Laborde, or uh, and I think he's the prime example, or maybe even Alexis Claude Maurice to an extent, are very talented players, but players who slot into uh, more possession, uh, not more possession based, but you know what I mean, like more uh, uh, slow build up sides, I would say, uh, in the sense that they would do better in roles where they, they might have to sort of drift into spaces between the lines and receive on the half turns and stuff like that. But what he needs maybe now is more sort of direct dribbling wingers like a Jeremy Boga, who we'll, we'll discuss later, who can, who have that individual moment of brilliance and who can decide those matches. And he hasn't really got that right now. So that's another part of the issue, especially against low block teams where maybe a moment of brilliance could decide the day. He hasn't got a lot of those attackers. Even Tara Murphy, who's a lovely, lovely striker, he does rely on a lot of service and he's 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 great going in behind, I'd say. So in those matches where they're against 
uh, playing against the press, he's quite handy to have. But against low blocks, again, he's not going to give you that bit of magic that you need. Uh, so in that respect, I- I'd say the players that are in the current squad aren't exactly helpful in that regard either. And I'm sure in upcoming transfer windows, he will look to address that. Uh, but yeah, even tactically, that is definitely the aspect that, in my opinion, uh, they should be focusing on. But uh, yeah, any anything you guys have to add to that? I would just say that I think uh, I think they have been stacking against like uh, guilty a bit of the Brighton stuff. But I think there are some positive signs. Like the reason I mentioned the Monaco story before is because I wanted to bring up what Nice did, how they adapted to them in possession, which I thought was really neat. Uh, Monaco in this game, they defended in like a a five two three that was. Uh, I'm trying to think the, the specific type of zone or press. I know some we explained it to the audience. This is Tansu's podcast. It, I think it was more like a a zone a, a position oriented zone or press. Neil can always come in and fact check me here if I misremember it. But uh, that what that would be basically is uh, Monaco wanting to retain this five two three shape. You can manage it in your head. And, you know, if, if the striker moved up to press, the midfielder kind of filled that gap. But it was really about keeping that solidity. Neil hasn't put his hand up, so I assume I'm doing well. Um, but yeah, so Monaco were more reminiscent of a, a team lower down the table, right? Rather than a, a a Man City or a PSG looking to press Nice and like opening up space behind them. And for a large part of the first half, uh, Nice struggled against Monaco, like against this block. And they kept on conceding the ball, like, in their first two lines. Uh, but the way they broke it down and managed to get into little pockets was by moving uh, their midfielders, uh, Taram and I think it was Sansal in that game. They moved them from like behind and behind Monaco's like front three out to like wards their wing backs where Nice's fullbacks were. And it, 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 what they do is like it, it just meant the fullbacks, the wingbacks rather than Monaco would have to pick one of those two players to hop onto. And usually they stayed wide and try to get Monaco's midfield to uh, like cover the passing lanes. And it basically, it was just set up this chain reaction, which Nice wanted, where it was either the pass went into Nice's midfielders or Monaco stretched their defensive line and Nice were able to fire passes straight through to Moffi. And so I think that like is, is a fair criticism. I think they have been stagnant at times. But that game was a nice little insight into how I think Farioli is a good coach who can adapt who is spotting things and it's not just a simple case of set up my you know set up my shape for this game how i think it'll be and just leave it be if he if he sees a weakness he'll try and get his team to exploit it yeah absolutely fair enough and as i said you know from his time at alliance for uh, i have no doubts that uh he will sort of they will work on this further but yeah for now i think the way to set up against Nice is probably to defend in more of a block, not necessarily low, but not proactively press them and basically not allow any sort of passing lanes to open, like you said, Alex, because then he's happy to go just direct into a striker even. And Murphy is great for that as well. So, yeah, um, I guess for now, that is the one probably way to give them most trouble. But definitely, I expect, as Varun said, in the second half of the season, or even next season, they will uh, get a lot better in this regard. But yeah, I think on the whole, we can, as far as our tactics go, we can safely say that finally done a fantastic job in just 10 games since coming in. Completely transformed their defensive stuff. 
really really interesting way to do it as well and a very very successful approach uh, as we highlighted uh, a very good hybrid approach and in position in possession too uh, fantastic against presses i would say already uh, really good to sort of play through any sides that they'll step up and press them and happy to sort of build out short and then go long when the opportunity presents itself but of course as, as i said some stuff to work on when trying to break down more uh, more settled and more disciplined blocks but i guess that's enough about their tactics we should also go on to some of their players because they do have some very exciting names in that squad and so I, I i'd say some players who might not be there for much longer uh, if both they continue to perform as well as they're doing and nice continue to uh, play as well and be as high up in the table as they are so let's maybe uh, pick out a couple of players each that have caught our eye uh, let's start with i suppose the biggest name of the bunch uh, from you alex yeah so the guy if you're a premier league fan you definitely know his name um actually i think he might be the second biggest compared to who Aaron will talk about uh catherine Taram, uh by all accounts all reports was pretty close to being bidded on by liverpool or at least joining liverpool um but they i think they went for zabozla and he ended up kind of poo-pooed a move uh for Taram. and interestingly he, he had a really really good second after the season last year and he's not got any goals or assists this year. And for a central midfielder, that might find, seem like quite a harsh thing to judge him on. Um, but Taram, he's about six foot three, I want to say. I coined him last season as the new Pogba, which I know is like a really lazy name, but I feel like for him, it's pretty fair. It's a, a, really, a, a tall, strong midfielder who's also really agile, who catches the eye more for what he does on the ball. And he's like, dribbling ability and his agility as well. I was able to evade tackles in tight spaces, like rather than what he does out of possession, right? Which is why I feel like the poker comparison is apt because it, like both players, when you watch them play, you feel like they're just from the way they move, they, they look like they're a level above everyone else on the pitch. Uh, but yeah, he's not, uh, despite scoring quite a few goals second half last season, um, I think he, he he got two goals and four assists last league season. Um, yeah, despite that strong end this year, nothing yet. But he's still doing well with his ball carry. I think he missed a game, a couple of games due to suspension. But I still think this will be a really big year for him. He's in the top 5% of players in your big five leagues for successful take-ons. That's the central midfielders, of course, as well. And his defensive work, I always feel like, is fine. Um, doesn't he, he probably wouldn't work as a six, but... Maybe if a manager really wanted to take the 22-year-old in and morph him into that, you could see it. But uh, yeah, I, I hope Taram is going to have a, a big year. He's started a little slow, um, but I reckon this by this time next year, uh, Farrioli will hopefully have turned him into a real beast that's uh, firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, one or two things on Kefren Taram. One is, I mean, I like the Pogba comparisons, especially in possession. I think one thing he has that Pogba never had is the out-of-possession stuff. Thuram is such a good presser and he tracks back so well. I mean, so much of what we spoke about, right, uh, of he's being good and uh, out-of-possession and in pressing and Thuram's a big part of it. So, yeah, he can give you that attacking box-to-box vibe in possession, but he can also give you a very good hard-working presser out of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, 
also just a large point when we're talking about the players i mean alex mentioned uh kefren is like 97 percentile for progressive carries and i mentioned this earlier too if you look at a lot of the recent signings terem moffy jeremy boga morgan sanson were all 90 percent plus for progressive carries in their previous clubs before they were signed in amongst the existing players kefren thuram is 95 plus todibo is 90 plus so there are a lot of there is a lot of carrying power in this squad i mean it's just another reflection of where the game is going for possession sides it's not just pass pass and break lines now you carry to break lines as well so on that la- note i'll transition to a player who also breaks lines with his uh, passing and carrying and that's john clair todibo and as alex said i think these are the two big names that have been linked everywhere i think Todibo is very strongly linked to United. Um, almost until the last week, there was a big chance of Maguire going to West Ham, and the whatever thirty or thirty-five million being spent on Todibo or Tapsuba. Todibo was very, very much in the running, and I think it made a lot of sense for United because if you are seeing the right-sided centre back as a gap there to be filled by a very good ball player. a very good build up uh, player who who has a lot of sense in in where to be in the first phase where to be to receive the ball a very good carrier of the ball who can receive turn and carry into space and also very intense defender and i think todibo ticks all of those boxes um his defending is actually so good um i can also see him work like a right back uh, there are many shouts for him being a situational right back and i think he has played that a few times uh, in his career because his carrying his movement is so good and his defending on the flanks especially is so good he probably can pull that off but even even when he's playing right center back his channel defending is superb and that is something i think he's improved a lot over time and again i think it's a pertinent point to where the game is going today even in our previous episodes uh, even in our last episode when we spoke about res defense and ange postecoglou's 235 the only way that works is the two center backs being super channel defenders and there are lots of discussions about you know um, cities defenders like guardiola ke dias being very good channel defenders and todibo is in that range he is in that top team center back range where you can invert the full backs or push the full backs up because you know my center back will defend those channels well he has that intensity he has that defensive coverage and speed and agility to almost defend like a half like a full back and todibo has that in his uh, in his armory so i think a re- really good defender and their center back pairing is just really funny i mean dante is 40 years old he he can talk down to farioli who's 5 years younger to him and it's just really crazy dante is also doing so well and dante and todibo both of them are really good passers and carriers dante a little bit more on the passing side todibo a bit more on the carrying side so in terms of build up combination it just works uh, really well and i think on the subject of uh, todibo if you guys have to add anything feel free i think neil has an has his hand up so let's go there yeah i think as you mentioned he's is fantastic in various aspects but specific, uh, specifically focusing on the defensive side of things i first noticed him when he was uh, on loan at schalke 
in I'd like to say like early 2000 uh, when yeah the last season in the Bundesliga uh, at that time and so what really stood out even then was like defensively in duels he was already a super player he was really strong he could you know make great tackles and sort of muscle people off the ball and everything but at that time he was a bit uh, uh, maybe a bit erratic you could say he did tend to step out of the defensive line a lot and everything and so at that time it, uh, you know i felt that he'd probably be best as a right center back in a back three which he did play often then too uh, but yeah was really impressed me at nice how he's transitioned into a more uh, a more sort of calm defender in of course a back two uh, or rather with a back four but with two center backs uh, and so yeah like his his mental side of the game has really really improved since then i think so yeah credit to him uh, and of course uh, credit to the coaches he said as well that he's he's massively improved in that aspect because i think like physically and technically he's always been super strong but he has been a bit erratic before both out of possession and also sometimes in possession which is like you know attempting too much with like passing and carries but he, he's really sort of calmed down in all those aspects now uh, and yeah become a fantastic talent so yeah definitely want to mention there uh let's move on to uh someone who i think is not not necessarily as a bigger talent as either of these two but in my opinion as i alluded to earlier probably the type of player farioli wants in his attack and that's jeremy boga now for those of you who aren't aware of jeremy boga uh, it has shocked me as much as it might shock you to learn that he has played premier league football with surprise surprise chelsea uh, back in 2017, he played a grand total of 17 minutes for them. Uh, but since then, he's moved on to various places. He made a name for himself really in Italy. First uh, at Sassuolo, under at Zerbi, and of course with Safarioli in the coaching staff uh, for a few seasons. I think it was about four altogether. And then he moved uh, to uh, Atalanta, uh, and he spent about a year and a half or so there. Uh, and in terms of the sort of player he is, the uh, Ivorian international is a really, really exciting, wide, one-way one dribbler. He's got fantastic close control, rapid direction changes, so he can really twist defenders inside out and get past them. He's, he's you, I mean, yeah, he's like dribbling numbers. Like this, in the last uh, year, he's averaged 4.41 successful take-ons, which is the 99th percentile among wingers in the top five leagues in uh in the in europe and so obviously then progressive carries as well super high uh and in, in that aspect he's great but the big question mark about him to me has always been his end product except one season at sassuolo when he scored 11 goals his uh, sort of league returns look really poor i'll just read them out for you so after he left chelsea he went uh, for a season at birmingham city now in that season in the championship he played uh, 2,000 minutes uh, and got two goals and three assists. Then the following season, about 1,500 minutes, three goals, one assist. Next season, 2,500 minutes. That was the 11 goal season. Great stuff. But then 1,700 odd minutes, just four goals, two assists. The next season, uh, again close to 1,500 minutes, just two assists. Last season in Serie A, at only 700 odd minutes and a decent return there of two goals and five assists. But as you can see, on the whole, 
his end product has in my opinion been a bit of a question and i think creatively he's he's really improved as we saw with those numbers last season uh and he he does create a good few chances especially from wide with crossing and everything but yeah still scoring is still a question mark so i think in, in terms of basic profile like as a wide winger who's great one we want uh, can twist a defender inside out and take people on he's exactly what farioli needs but yeah i'm sure farioli would like to see more end product from him as would anyone so i suppose that's the 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 bit to watch out for but yeah he's super super exciting to watch as is almost uh, any uh, great dribbling winger so yeah, in that respect uh, definitely someone who who will catch the eye uh, if you watch nice but now let's move on to someone who uh, might maybe go a bit unnoticed if you if you're maybe perhaps ball watching but in my opinion he, uh, and i'm sure varun will probably agree he's arguably been one of the most important players uh Tunis's tactics both especially out of possession but also in possession uh and he's a really exciting youngster as well so Varun why don't you move us uh, on to our next player yeah um I think the player I wanted to talk about mainly I want to uh talk about him is because as you said he goes very unnoticed but a large reason of why the tactics work are because of Nadai Shimi did I say that right Neil Uh, just about I, i think they call him andai shime andai shime yeah okay i'm just going to call him andai okay why don't you call him yusuf that's his first name oh yusuf <laughs> that's such a easier name uh, yeah <laughs> so i mean i'd say he's like the swiss army knife uh, uh player of the team and not because he's like a john o'shea or something like that but i meant more tactically he can he can play as a defensive midfielder as a central midfielder as a center back and often all of these happen in the same game so i mean we've spoken about the tactics and we say there's a 433 but at times there's a back 52 so that that difference in formation is thanks to yusuf he um has this ability he does start at number 6 uh, so he starts at number 6 in the 433 and I was just looking at FB ref comparison of players and Zubi Mendy is uh, the player he's compared to across the top five leagues and I think that's a nice start. He's a very good single pivot player, very good build up sense. He knows when to drop, where to position himself and I think that's a big deal with these build up tactics. But then he often drops between the center backs or even sometimes as a right sided center back. And remember when we spoke earlier about Todibo vacating his space or the right back vacating his space and uh, Yusuf is the one who's able to slot into the back four or the back five and ensure that build up is not harmed so he's that extra player uh, who fills in for someone when they move ahead for a rotation either towards the wing usually towards the wing so very that's possible only i mean it's not all the players who can do that you know not everyone on the pitch is doing that he's the only one tasked with that fairly trusts him because he has that intelligence and so far he has yusuf hasn't made those those mistakes so i think a very good playmaker he is also on the younger side and i think it's, this is just one of those profiles which in general gets overlooked by top teams i mean everyone wants a kefren thuram and actually argue a lot of teams don't need a kefren thuram attacking number 8 attacking midfielders like liverpool have three or four of them uh, what they actually need is a number 6 what united needs is a number 6 every team needs a number 6 even uh, arsenal need needs one with party out they need someone you know who can rotate with rice or beside so i think all the top teams 
um should be looking at profiles which don't seem sexy or exciting they won't grab the headlines but they really really help tactically so yeah i mean just a bit of love for yusuf and the ishimi okay i i just said i just keep getting worse at it let's let's we want to but I, you know what i would say a player whose name is easier to pronounce brass only because we sort of anglicize his name because i think if you say his name properly you get something a bit different but why don't we talk about uh, nice's polish goalkeeper alex so i feel, i still feel like it would be musin bulka i feel like it was how, uh, i think the, the, he's got the I'm, i'm so sorry to any polish listeners if i'm saying this terribly but he's got the l with the line right and that's apparently pronounced like a w uh, is very oversimplified oversimplified but so oh. he'd be something like musin bulka or something i Masin might be bulka. wrong but But like I do know they call uh, West Ham's goalkeeper Vukash Fabianski. So by that logic, I'm assuming that the same applies here. But anyway, yeah. let's let's just call him whatever we usually call him for the purposes of. Well, well don't worry. I mean, I'm actually gonna. It's gonna be a little quiz because I think uh, we've already covered the defense. Uh, uh, Budka is. Uh, I feel like making the effort is a compliment to the Polish. That's what I'm gonna do. Uh, <laughs> is up 3.1 goals on post shot expected goals been a big part of their success uh, in defence and also with the ball at his feet um, he has made 10 appearances this league season uh, 10 league starts uh, he's 24 years old now how many career league starts do you think he's made including the 10 this season we'll go with Varun first Um can you repeat that again? I missed the so last one. So he's thing. made 10 league starts this season. How many career league starts do you think he's made including that 10? Oh, 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 oh. not much. I mean he's just been loan or backup in so many places. But I still probably guess 70. Okay, new. Uh, league starts, yeah. Yes. Uh 23. Neil was very close, twenty-seven, including oh, the ten this season. He damn. is very, because some people might know his name. He was he came through at Chelsea and then went to PSG. Made yeah. one league start in nineteen twenty. Made another in twenty twenty-one. Then he made nine on loan at uh, Chateau um, in Ligue Two, uh, and then three at Cardet uh, Cardena uh, in the second division. Cartagena, yeah. that's it, in the second division. Then one at Nice in twenty one and twenty two, two at Nice last season, and now ten. But he's twenty four wow. years old. He's finally become a starter, and look at him go! So big shout out I to mean, him. I, I remember in all your games, whether it's FM or PS or any of them, twenty one, twenty two year old Bulka would be like the go to goalkeeper, and he'll become really amazing. But I actually thought he'd started for Chelsea at least once. No starts for Chelsea is really funny. Uh, but yeah, I mean, nice. He's made it. Yeah, typical Chelsea. Uh, but yeah, uh, I guess finally to round us off, I'll pick one of their fullbacks. So we mostly covered all the positions, I think. Uh, and I will pick Melvin Bard, who I think is a bit of an underrated fullback, a really exciting one. I definitely say, just twenty-two years old, so still uh, a young talent. I think you would call him. Uh, he now he came through at Lyon, I believe, uh, but moved. As many Lyon players do, because they don't really get too many starting options because of just how many talents they have. He moved to Nice, uh, aged about 20, in the uh, summer of 2021, and since then he's been a regular starter for them. 
He's played, I think, 66 league matches in the last two seasons, 33 each. So, absolute first-teamer there. Uh, and, yeah, he's, he's, he's just basically a very well-rounded fullback, I feel. He's good going forward, solid defensively, tough to beat one-on-one, uh, can put in a good cross. Uh, it, I don't think he's particularly standout uh, in terms of his creativity, but I do like his off-ball movement. I think his overlapping runs in particular are quite good, although that's something that's not utilized so much in Farioli's tactics, but he's still adapted really well. So in, in sort of the more inside roles that weren't described in possession, he's been really comfortable receiving the ball in in. Um, almost more central spaces uh, and he's a very good uh, progressor through both passing and carrying and again uh, 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 very secure so he retains the ball a lot and tough to beat defensively as I mentioned too so yeah a, a very well-rounded fullback uh, has got some strengths which aren't really highlighted by the system but he's he's doing his job really well so yeah again sort of in line with Boga he's I guess a player who Farioli should be quite happy with uh, but yeah, I, I suppose there's, as always, there's perhaps more players we might want to highlight. I'll just give a quick shout out to Darren Murphy, who we spoke about briefly in our tactical discussion. A great striker, though perhaps not exactly the profile Farioli wants apparently. And Yusuf Adal as well, a very exciting right back, uh, although he hasn't been able to play a lot this season for, a, well, some off-field issues. Uh, namely, I think a post in support of Palestine, which obviously would flag up every single authority ever, seemingly. But anyway, uh, quite a few exciting players for Nice, quite a few young players too, uh, that we spoke of. So in all aspects, tactically, uh, you know, young manager uh, looking for exciting young talents. I think Nice are definitely a team to watch this season, obviously besides the fact that they're leading Liga. So I guess to round this off, let's address uh, the big question, which is how, how well can they go? What can they do? So. Let's have our season predictions for Nice. Who wants to go first? League title. Oh, okay. I'm going to keep this simple. League title into two. What does that mean? Well, uh, I'm, I also believe they're going to be in a Oh, league. okay. Oh. Like, league title <laughs> X2, like you write it, you know? Right, right. Like, I see. I, I, I thought you were talking about like two league titles. Like, give us the next season prediction. Why not? <laughs> two <laughs> league titles. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, that, that's what I'm going to say second. Oh, <laughs> come on. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I mean, you, I you support all these. You support all these small teams. All yeah, these. I would actually underdogs. And then when the real underdog is stepping nah, up, nah, you nah. are not backing them. This is this is Neil being showing his PSG colors once more. All, just because <laughs> you live in Qatar, mate, don't it doesn't mean you have to back the Qatari State Club. Look, I I would absolutely love to see them win the title, right? But this is predictions. And while predicting, I predict what's likely to happen rather than what I want to see happen, unlike some people in this podcast. See, Neil, I'll tell you one thing. If if Eric Tanak has shown us anything, being pragmatic is not (laughs) working. So this pragmatic side of yours, it's not not in form. See, I ended the session with a United joke as well. Well done. I can take it. There you go. But yeah, I would say that they will challenge PSG, I think. But I think they will fall 5 to 10 points short. That is my prediction. But uh, yeah, let's see how it goes. But next season, we might see something interesting. But anyway... I think that nicely rounds us off for the episode. So, 
thank you very much guys for joining us on this uh, very nice deep dive i think on nice you can find all of us uh, on twitter uh, i'm at shelat neel varun runs the at devils dna account alex is at euro expert underscore and you can find the get football uh, all the get football accounts rather at uh, if you go to at get football eu you'll find everything in the bio including get french football where we obviously cover nice uh, among other liga teams and uh, teams from lower divisions so yeah, do keep a look out on uh, all those platforms and outlets where you'll find as i say uh, coverage of uh, all all the major football across the big european leagues and across the world really uh, with all the latest news analysis uh, opinions and all sorts of stuff you can find links to everything in the description or the notes or whatever it is on the podcast app you're listening to so just go down there and take a look and while you're down there if your app allows it please do rate the podcast uh, as well if you enjoyed it and of course feel free to share it uh, on social media as well if you found this insightful but in any case thank you for listening thanks to you uh, alex and varun for joining me on this one we'll be back once again next week but uh, take care until then bye bye